I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. As we continue our chronological reading of the Gospels, today we're looking at Matthew chapter 24, beginning with verse 32, down through Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, Mark chapter 13, verses 28 to 37, and Luke chapter 21, verses 29 through 36. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. So here's where we are with regard to Jesus' ministry. Jesus is still on Mount Olivet overlooking Jerusalem, and this is the second part of that presentation. These events, by the way, take place during the week preceding his crucifixion. As I mentioned, this is a continuation of the Olivet Discourse. A few days before Jesus was crucified, he was on Mount Olivet overlooking Jerusalem, teaching his disciples. Jesus was asked to elaborate on prophetic events in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. These passages are a continuation of those comments, the answer to those questions. We looked at the first part of his presentation on the reading for May 17th. Jesus teaches in these passages on the events that will take place within the period that we know as the tribulation and the millennium to follow. I've provided a chart on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today. It's a prophecy timeline and gives you an overview of where we are with regard to future events. We begin with the closing days of the seven-year tribulation period in Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 to 35, Mark chapter 13, verses 28 to 31, and Luke chapter 21, verses 29 through 33. First, Matthew chapter 24, verse 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now over to Mark, Mark chapter 13, beginning with verse 28. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now over to Luke chapter 21, beginning with verse 29. Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Leading up to this passage, we have in view the closing days of the tribulation period. These cataclysmic events seem to correspond with the vile judgments of Revelation chapter 16. 
Then an interesting and often misunderstood analogy is given by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 to 34, Mark 13, 28 to 30, and Luke 21, verses 29 to 32. So the analogy goes like this. When leaves appear on the trees, everybody knows that to be a sign that summer is near. Likewise, when the events just outlined in the previous verses of these chapters are viewed, the return of Jesus is near. The generation of people who see the events of the tribulation will also see the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, many good teachers have read something more into this analogy of Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 regarding the fig tree. They maintain that the fig tree here is a metaphor representing Israel. The teaching they promote is that the generation of people who saw Israel put forth leaves, in other words, become a nation in 1948, that that will be the generation who will see the second coming of Jesus Christ. That misunderstanding of the passage has led Christians to believe that the return of Jesus Christ was to take place in, first of all, 1978. That was 30 years from Israel's birth. Then, when that didn't take place, many picked the year 1988, which was 40 years, and again in 1998, which was 50 years. For those who still maintain that understanding of the fig tree prophecy, most have now concluded that it really must mean that the generation who saw that event will still be alive when the second coming of Jesus does take place. With life expectancies now in the latter 70s, that makes that prophetic interpretation palatable until 2030 or so. Besides their lack of clarity, for the most part, between the rapture and the actual return of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation, there are some scriptural difficulties with this interpretation of Jesus' parable. But one particular scriptural point voids the interpretation altogether, at least in my thinking. That difficulty lies in the parallel passage to Matthew 24 found in Luke chapter 21, and we'll discuss that in just a few moments. However, one well-known teacher of prophecy maintained that the put-forth leaves represents the land acquisition experienced by Israel as a result of the 1967 war rather than Israel's birth as a nation. He had insisted that the generation of people who witnessed the recapture of Jerusalem by the Jews in that 1967 Six-Day War, that that will be the generation who will see the return of Christ rather than the generation having seen Israel declare their independence as a nation in 1948. That prediction placed the second coming of Jesus Christ in 2018 and the rapture seven years earlier, 2011. His generation was derived by dividing the number of generations, which were 42, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, into the number of years representing those generations. That computation yielded 51.4 years per generation. So by adding 51 to 1967, he computed 2018 for the second coming. However, that prediction was issued back in 2006, and as time has neared to 2011, he's kind of backed off that hypothesis. Now, let me clarify something. It is true, Jesus does use the fig tree to represent Israel in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, and perhaps again in Matthew chapter 21, paralleled by Mark 11. However, it does not appear that Jesus is using the fig tree as a metaphor for Israel in this passage. In my mind, it overcomplicates this passage to view it as anything more than a simple analogy to nature. A comparison of the three accounts of Jesus' words demonstrates the reason I am convinced that Jesus is simply giving an analogy rather than a complicated metaphor. 
You'll see it by comparing Matthew chapter 24, verse 32, with Luke chapter 21, verse 29. Matthew writes this. He says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. However, Luke's account expands the wording as follows in verse 29. Luke says, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. In my thinking, the inclusion of the phrase all the trees eliminates the possibility that there is a hidden meaning here with regard to the fig tree being a metaphor for Israel. Because if the fig tree is Israel, then all the other trees must be a representation of all the other nations. Their national births took place at varying times in history. Luke's account of this teaching by Jesus seems to confirm that Jesus was giving a simple analogy to nature, as I previously mentioned. So, when will Jesus return? Well, let's look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 51, Mark chapter 13, verses 32 to 37, and Luke chapter 21, verses 34 through 36. First, Matthew 24, 36. But at that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household, to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him, and at an hour that he is not aware of, and will cut him in two, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now let's go over and look at Mark chapter 13, beginning with verse 32. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. Lest coming, suddenly he find you sleeping, and what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Now over to Luke chapter 21, beginning with verse 34. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Both Mark and Luke close out their account of this discourse by Jesus with less detail than Matthew does. 
Mark and Luke sum up the return of Jesus to establish his kingdom on earth at the end of the tribulation, rather simply stating the importance to keep a watch. Matthew, on the other hand, includes the remainder of the Olivet Discourse, specifics regarding how this second return of Christ will actually take place. Matthew begins his expanded coverage of Jesus' remarks with the same analogy that Luke recorded in Luke chapter 17, verses 26 and 27, being that of Noah. Now look at this closely. In the Noahic scenario, who was it that left the earth and who stayed behind? Well, the answer is the wicked were swept away by the flood, leaving the righteous family of Noah remaining alone on the earth to repopulate. This disappearance is not the rapture of the church. Now, here are two reasons why we know this is not the rapture. First of all, Matthew 24 is a chronological account of the seven-year tribulation period, and this event takes place at the end of that chapter. Secondly, in this analogy, the wicked disappear, and that is exactly what will happen at the end of the tribulation. The wicked are destroyed. We see that in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. And, by the way, the righteous, at the end of the tribulation, the righteous remain on the earth to populate the millennium. The rapture, by the way, is not the second coming of Jesus Christ. According to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51-53, Jesus appears in the clouds at the rapture, and believers meet him in the air. There is no return of Jesus to earth at that time. Now, Jesus does return to the earth at the end of the tribulation when the wicked are destroyed off the face of the earth, and the righteous remain on the earth for the millennium. So what about the two in the field and the two grinding, where one is taken and the one is left, in Matthew 24, verses 40 and 41? Well, it's obvious that the wicked one is taken away to judgment here, and the righteous one is left to populate the millennium right here on earth. That's just as Noah and his family were left to repopulate the earth after the flood. Jesus then speaks a parable with another analogy to confirm this wicked disappearance hypothesis, the faithful servant in Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 to 51, also briefly discussed in verses 34 and 35 of Mark 13. Now, in this wicked disappearance scenario, the faithful servant lives and the unfaithful servant dies. There simply can be no serious dispute that this is referencing the end of the tribulation, and it is not referencing the rapture. The rapture takes place seven years before the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation. The millennium on earth begins with only righteous people coming out of the tribulation period. Now, Matthew continues the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 25. This Olivet Discourse that Jesus began back at the beginning of Matthew 24 continues. While Mark and Luke cover the Olivet Discourse as well in Mark 13 and Luke 21, neither do so as comprehensively as does Matthew. Mark and Luke chronologically cover the events of the tribulation all the way down to the end when Jesus returns to earth as the Messiah. Matthew 25 continues that chronological order with additional details regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation. Matthew 25 cannot be properly understood outside of that context. We begin with this wedding supper of the Lamb in the first 13 verses of Matthew chapter 25. Let's read. 
Verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now here's the culmination of the theme that Jesus has been introducing throughout his ministry, his return to establish his earthly rule as Messiah over the whole earth. Now, don't forget that the kingdom of heaven is the name given by Jesus to this period of earthly rule by the Messiah that had been prophesied all the way back into the Old Testament. If you want to know more about that kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven message, then look at the introduction to my notes on Matthew chapter 5. In these verses, Jesus gives a parable that compares the entry into this period by people at the end of the tribulation to people entering into a wedding feast. As is the case with all of Jesus' parables, one must figure out who the characters are intended to represent for the parable to be meaningful. Throughout the Gospels, we have seen that the bad people or the foolish people in Jesus' parables are, well, they're usually intended to be representations of the Jewish leaders of the day, being the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. This passage continues in that tradition. So the scenario of this parable is as follows. The wedding feast is the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation. The bridegroom is Jesus, introduced as such by John the Baptist in John chapter 3, verses 27 through 30, and then by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 9, verse 15, and Mark chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. The foolish virgins are the bride attendants who do not prepare, as in Jews during the tribulation who do not anticipate Jesus' return. The wise virgins are the bride attendants who do prepare, and they are ready for the second coming at the end of the tribulation. And the identity of the bride herself and representation of the oil for the lamps, well, they're frequently conjectured by Bible teachers, but these components, representations, are not necessary to understand the lesson of this parable. So here's the lesson of verses 1 through 13. Despite the clear indications of the second coming of the Messiah by the fulfillment of the events of Matthew 24, the tribulation events, many Jews who say they are looking for the coming of the Messiah will be completely unprepared when the event actually takes place. These foolish virgins, they will reject Jesus as the Messiah, and thus they will be the equivalent of those at the end of Matthew 24 who are taken away to judgment, to punishment, at the conclusion of the tribulation. Those wise virgins, well, they will be those who enter the kingdom of heaven, the millennium, pictured in this parable as a wedding feast. 
We know these people as those who survived the tribulation, and they will be the people who will enter into what we now know to be the future millennium. This wedding scenario to describe the millennium was also used by Jesus earlier that crucifixion week in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. In verses 14 through 30 of Matthew 25, Jesus expands on the definition of wise and unwise. Verse 14, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them, and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had gained two, gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For at everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." The parable given in this passage is intended to further identify the activities of those who are wise during the period leading up to the second coming of Jesus, as opposed to those who are unwise. Since Jesus gives us a glimpse of the intensity of this period in Matthew 24, this parable is intended to motivate kingdom of heaven appropriate activity during this period. Jesus indicates that the servant who anticipates the return of his master during this period, he's the equivalent of those wise virgins who had their lamps trimmed and ready to go. These faithful servants are those who properly prepared during the tribulation for the return of Jesus the Messiah at the end of the tribulation. On the other hand, those wicked and lazy servants, where they are those Jews who, despite the indicators of the time, don't anticipate nor prepare during the tribulation period for the second coming of Jesus. They are faithless. Therefore, this passage is appropriately taught by most fundamental Bible teachers as the basis for the judgment of the Jews at the end of the tribulation period. This understanding is strengthened by verse 32, where the Greek word ethnos 
is used and translated nations in the King James Version and the New King James Version. The word ethnos is used frequently in the New Testament to differentiate between Jewish and non-Jewish people. Ethnos means non-Jewish, and it's often translated Gentiles. As for the specifics of this parable, keep in mind that the servants are charged with increasing their master's wealth while he's away. The servant who declines to do so, well, he's counted as wicked. Why is he wicked? Jesus implies that perhaps the wicked servant did not really believe his master would return. He did no work for his master while he was away. He literally rejected the mission assigned to him. We've seen this parable before with a few minor variations back in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 28. In that passage, the audience was different, but the implications of wicked people rejecting the Messiah are still integral components of that message. So what if you're not a Jew during the tribulation? Well, there's the message for that crowd in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. And all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world." For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger, and take you in, or naked, and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick, or in prison, and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, I'm confident that these verses are given to explain the actions of faith during the tribulation period leading up to the second coming of Jesus by those who aren't Jews. That differentiation is made clear by the Greek usage of the word ethnos, as I mentioned earlier, translated nations in the King James Version and in the New King James Version in verse 32. That word is used frequently in the New Testament to differentiate between Jews and non-Jews, very often being translated Gentiles. Now here the concept is that before him shall be gathered all nations, meaning non-Jewish people, who are alive at the end of the tribulation. Verse 31 clearly gives us the time frame and setting for this judgment, and that being at the conclusion of the tribulation, to determine who enters into the millennium. 
Most fundamental Bible teachers do agree that this judgment of the nations is a judgment of non-Jews at the end of the tribulation. So here we have the sheep as representations of the righteous and the goats as representations of the unrighteous during the period of tribulation. So how does a non-Jew express his faith in Jesus during the period of tribulation leading up to the second coming of Jesus? The faithful Gentiles or non-Jews of the tribulation will express their faith in Jesus Christ by ministering to the needs of those about the business of evangelizing the world. Those who are deemed at the end of the tribulation to be faithful are rewarded in verse 34 when it says, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Those goats on the left, who are deemed to have been unfaithful, faithless, during this period of tribulation, have their reward in verse 41 when it says, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The final reality of this judgment is found in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, when it says, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Incidentally, these who reject the gospel message in this passage are also described in Matthew chapter 22, verses 11 through 14. In that passage, they are portrayed as a man who attempts to sneak into the wedding, being the millennium, but he's banished instead. Now, here's an important note about the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapters 24 and 25, Mark 13 and Luke 21, establish the framework upon which John's revelation is based. Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, all three of those passages outline the events of Revelation chapters 6 through 19. Matthew 25 corresponds to the same time frame as Revelation chapter 20. To directly apply these passages outside of their intended prophetic periods, well, that's to do an injustice to sound Bible teaching. The people and events of these passages are absolutely to be understood as having their place in the future of the earth leading up to the second coming of Jesus. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walker. 